You've worked hard for what you have, your money, your assets, your 401k and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com slash aware. Terms apply. We're excited to announce that our very own podcasting platform, Zencaster, has become a new sponsor to the show. Check out the podcast discount link in our show notes and stay tuned for why we love using Zen for the podcast. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Hello and welcome to the Archaeotech Podcast, episode 129. I'm your host, Chris Webster, with my co-host, Paul Zimmerman. Today, we talked to Wesley Weatherby about his research in the Bay of Fundy using geophysics, photogrammetry, drones, and GIS in contextualizing past cultural landscapes. Let's get to it. All right, welcome to the show, everybody, and welcome, Paul. How's it going, man? It's going okay. It's been um, what two months now of doing the remote learning and the uh, the Zoom <laughs> help desk and everything, and one day blends into the next. But uh, nothing, nothing bad has been happening in my immediate world. How about you? Yeah, pretty much the same. Same every day for me. It's just you know I'm I'm a remote worker to begin with. Uh, even when mm. everybody's talking about going back, I mean nothing's going to change for me. So. Except Civil Air Patrol. Normally, I I go to Civil Air Patrol meetings at least once a week, but they announced that, and we're recording today on on May nineteenth, so everybody knows where we're at in the quarantine COVID nineteen process. But Civil Air Patrol extended their no in person meetings across the country rule to June thirtieth. So, regardless, we're still meeting virtually, so we're we're having fun with all that. So, but the nice thing about podcasting is we always meet virtually because we get to talk to fascinating and interesting people around the world. I'm in Reno, Nevada. Paul's in New York. And today we're bringing in a guest from Nova Scotia, Wesley Weatherby. How's it going? Not bad. How about you, Chris? Not bad, man. I'm really excited to talk to you because, well, first off, I'm pretty sure there's a drinking game that goes along with the Architect podcast because we've been told that there either should be before or there is. But every time you say the word drone, which is right here in your write-up... <laughs> Because <laughs> we say drone a lot, feels like feels like that's our primary. T- it's either drone or database. I don't know which word we say more. <laughs> well, I say database. You say drone. That's <laughs> true. That's true. So now that our entire audience is I drunk already, let's get on. <laughs> yeah, let's get on to the topic. So we introduced the topic in the introduction, but why don't you tell us a little bit about your work in the Bay of Fundy? What first off, before we get into the details, what were you doing out there? And and hey, how about for our listeners that may not know where that's at before they pull out their uh, maps app on their phone? Where is the Bay of Fundy? And then what were you doing out there? So uh, the Bay of Fundy is a uh a bay in the Northeast Atlantic. It's surrounded by New Brunswick and Nova Scotia, but also as you go into the Outer Bay, you get down into the states, into Maine, and I believe into Rhode Island. So what were you doing in the Bay of Fundy? What was your research up there studying? We're not actually right in the Bay of Fundy at most times. There are mm-hmm. some drowned forests and submerged forests off, off the coast in the mudflats, but what we're doing is a lot of preparation work in advance of sea level rise and uh, coastal erosion issues. Mm. Today, I got to put the finishing touches on a report that is within the Minas Basin in the Bay of Fundy. We were doing a bit of CRM work, a uh, characterization or a phase one assessment of 
some dike lands mm -hmm. in the Minas Basin. And so a lot of these coastal marshes have now been drained since the uh, late 17th, early 18th century and are now used for agriculture. And so all over these marshes, you find lots of critical infrastructure for Nova Scotia's economy nowadays. So CRM work okay. on our critical infrastructure projects is going ahead. My master's topic is sea level rise over time within the Bay of Fundy and characterizing the correlation between where people are living and the sea level rise histories or relative sea level rise histories in the Bay of Fundy. And this is you're talking about long-term trends of sea level rise, right? Because Fundy is known for having high, incredibly high and low tides. Yeah, exactly. So this is also a very interesting point to make already because mean sea level here is actually quite a bit below our highest high tide. So our highest high tide at some points might be 15 meters above sea level, um, whereas mean sea level is Jeez. at zero. And mm -hmm. using the Canadian datum, oh. yeah, it's actually quite interesting. That makes our investigations a little bit trickier. So, Wesley, the current environment with all the restrictions in place up in Canada, Nova Scotia, you know, down here, if those are lifted, I mean, what are you guys' plans for this summer to continue this research? Yeah, so this summer, if the restrictions do get lifted, I'll hopefully be doing some large landscape scale surveys using ground penetrating radar and UAV on some of these drained coastal marshes within the upper Bay of Fundy. My intention is to marry those with LIDAR surface models and hopefully we'll be able to chart where erosion has occurred, but also where preserved upland surfaces and favorable other conditions such as hydrology. So you were saying that uh, some of these marshes were drained um, in the 17th, 18th mm -hmm. century onward. Are there other kinds of like major changes, uh, anthropogenic changes to the landscape that you're finding or that inform where people lived or what they did in the area? So the other sorts of anthropogenic features that you'd find on the coast are, um, you're going to find lots of weirs. Nova Scotia has been a fishing hotspot uh, for millennia. But related to the drained marshes is a lot of anthropogenic features you find along the coast called dikes. And so those are levees. You guys have the equivalent of them down in the Gulf of Mexico in Louisiana. One of the master's students mm -hmm. in my cohort is actually from Louisiana. They're both huge drained marshes. So it's the, uh, the Acadians that came here were the first to dike and drain the the marshes. In the 17th century, early 18th century, the Acadians were in the upper Bay of Fundy and they brought over with them this system of farming on coastal marshes, which is dikeland agriculture. And so they more or less set up these levees or big walls, the edges of salt marsh and stop the tide from coming in. You mentioned early on that we were that you were doing GPR and aerial survey via UAV. So I'm always curious because this is a tech podcast and I'm, I'm a pilot and I'm an aviation enthusiast and I'm a drone pilot as well. And I was just curious, what kind of equipment are you using for those large scale surveys? Do you guys have something in mind? Have you already done some of this stuff? I'm curious about the uh, the drone technology that you're using. 
Okay, yeah. So um, I actually, I've been working since my undergrad finished at Maritime Provinces Spatial Analysis Research Center at St. Mary's University. It's kind of an extension of the Geography and Environmental Studies Department or the faculty of mm-hmm. um, the department I'm doing my master's. Maritime Provinces Spatial Analysis Research Center, or MPSPARC for short. Within the lab, we have, I believe, four, maybe five drones. I know we have a Phantom 3 with some near-infrared on it. We have a Phantom 4 RTK, and we have a, a vertical takeoff and landing drone as well, which isn't used as much because the resolution is much too high to use for most of the projects. We have vertical restrictions for for drones in most cases, unless you have an SFOC of going up 90 meters. So an, an SFOC is a uh, safe flight operations certificate. Um, it's kind of like a, uh, a permitted flight one step above the typical licensed flight. Mm-hmm. So most times, unless we're surveying a huge area, we will use the phantoms. I can only think of the uh, our code names for them. <laughs> it's a vertical takeoff and landing fixed wing drone. But in most cases, unless we're doing a, a whole estuary system, it's um, too large for my, for my surveys during my master's. They'll be up to 90 hectares of survey. So... It won't be necessary to use something like this. We could just use a multiple battery flight with a Phantom 4. So you, uh, you've you said we a lot here. And so you're, you're working on your master's as part of a bigger project, I take it. Uh, how many people are involved and um, and how does your project fit into the rest of the, uh, to the larger picture in general? My master's is part of a, a larger, I guess, series of investigations into the Bay of Fundy. And they're interdisciplinary investigations as well. A lot of the people I work with are salt marsh ecosystem specialists or sedimentologists or coastal geomorphologists. There's a lot of remote sensing that goes into the work, but we also do a lot of coastal restoration, but also disaster preparedness as well. The project I've been working on that has led me into my master's is one of two projects that are under the Umbrella Research Center of Transcoastal Adaptations. And within that, there is the Making Room for Wetlands project and Making Room for Movement project. Uh, My master's is kind of an extension of some questions that arose from doing some CRM work for the Making Room for Wetlands project after my undergrad. And so in doing some of these CRM reports, I realized that we have really, really high resolution geological scale histories of where the coast was within the Bay of Fundy and some really great sonar evidence of where coastlines underneath the modern Bay of Fundy are. But underneath the coastal marshes or closer to the coast, to the modern coastline, the data isn't high enough resolution for archaeology or like archaeological prospection. So when we go to characterize these salt marsh environments, if you go to, say, the Canadian Soil Information Service and look at their data, the whole marsh will be considered salt marsh with no other mode of deposition. 
But if you go out on the marsh, you might find buried upland islands that are just, you know, islands of till that the sea has risen and enveloped over millennia. All right. Well, that's a good point to take a break. So why don't we come back on the other side of this and finish up our chat with Wesley Weatherby back in a second. Chris Webster here for the Archaeology Podcast Network. We strive for high quality interviews and content so you can find information on any topic in archaeology from around the world. One way we do that is by recording interviews with our hosts and guests located in many parts of the world all at once. We do that through the use of Zencaster. That's Z-E-N-C-A-S-T-R. Zencaster allows us to record high quality audio with no stress on the guest. Just send them a link to click on and that's it. Zencaster does the rest. They even do automatic transcriptions. Check out the link in the show notes for 30% off your first three months or go to zencastr.com and use the code Archaeotech. That's A-R-C-H-A-E-O-T-E-C-H. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware. You've worked hard for what you have. Your money, your assets, your 401k, and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com aware. Terms apply. Hi, welcome back to the Architect Podcast, episode 129. Today, Chris and I are interviewing Wesley Weatherby. He's a master's student at working in the Bay of Fundy. And um, and he was telling us about the uh, the unique, very unique, I think, geographical, geological, hydrological conditions that they're working in there. And so uh, we're wondering, talking offline here, Wesley, is what are some of the specific challenges of working on a coastal landscapes because it really sounds like you have with the, the, that the rising and lowering tides in particular but then also you know the, the changes people have made over the years you have some very specific kind of environment that we don't uh, neither Chris nor I have any uh, real experience with you know outside of a lot of the areas that work underneath the mud flats there are or the the expanse of mudflats in the Bay of Fundy, there are buried forests and buried upland surfaces under potentially meters and meters of sand flats that we just don't know a whole lot about. And unfortunately, we can't get a whole lot of good information without doing some sort of testing or potentially some GPR in maybe wintertime conditions. But behind the dikes on the drained salt marshes, we actually have a really interesting situation going on because I don't know whether you guys know this, salt will actually attenuate a GPR signal. So if you try to use GPR within a saline saline environment, then you won't get very good depth of penetration. So you won't be able to Hmm. see very deep, but conversely, you might actually get some better or vertical resolution. But that's why I mentioned 
wintertime conditions might be favorable to doing some GPR on the mudflats. That's something we have not tested yet, but it would be great to look into in the future. We'll see what happens in the wintertime. It's one of those projects I have in my back pocket in case everything else falls apart during my master's. <laughs> it, right now, I plan on doing... So coastal marshes, when they when salt marshes accrete or grow vertically, you get this <laughs> kind of flattening of the landscape that occurs. Sometimes you'll get erosion happening, but a lot of times you'll just get sediment deposition happening. And what happens is you go from a landscape that has hills and terraces and incised river valleys to a landscape that to the eye at the surface just looks completely flat. My idea is to combine surfaces derived from ground penetrating radar data at a fairly coarse scale for something like archaeological prospection. I'm looking at 20 meter by 100 meter line spacing rather than 25 centimeter line spacing on a lot of archaeological surveys. But my plan is to actually create a surface that will mimic the topography of the landscape and marry that to modern LIDAR data so that we can see what topography is under the surface, um, where old paleo channels might have been, where, you know, if compared to today's landscape, we might consider favorable conditions for people to camp at or potentially be uh, fishing or others, <laughs> other activities. Um, well, since I know nothing about the Bay of Fundy, is there a particular time period or culture that you're most hoping to uh, to get insight into, or is it uh, a broader sort of uh, you know picture of every you know everybody who lived in the area at the time and what they did on on that landscape? So I'm not sure what it's like throughout the rest of the Eastern Seaboard, but at least in Nova Scotia, we're kind of right on the edge of the Laurentide ice sheet during deglaciation and then the younger dryest period so we have we have mm -hmm. some glimpses of paleo period and the early archaic and the mid archaic but for a lot of that we don't have a lot of really good data that's because either the sea level would have been much too high much too low or closer to modern day level but the marshes have now flattened that landscape out and completely entombed it. We have sparse data points and, you know, isolated finds for all of the time periods that used to be called, at least in the far northeast, the Great Hiatus Period. Um, what's the, is there an analog for the greater or the Great Hiatus further down the eastern seaboard? Or is that something that is unique to the far northeast? Mm -hmm. You know, I don't know in particular, uh, to be honest, but uh, I will tell you that, I mean, geologically speaking, you know, there are a lot of similarities up and down the East Coast, of course, um, no matter where you're at, right? Geologically, there's no there's no borders or boundaries uh, in, in deep time. So presumably there would be. And in different areas, like especially when... Let's say when sea levels, uh, sea levels have ebbed and, ebbed and flowed, of course, and at some point sea levels were much higher, sea levels were lower, you know, it's gone back and forth. And I know Florida 
I mean, if you raise the sea levels by just a few feet right now, we lose most of Florida. <laughs> so there was, you know, and the and the coastal plain in like the Carolinas and Georgia and leading up into Virginia, same thing. You know, it's very volatile from a um, from a sea level standpoint, very impacted by um, by sea level rise and, and fall. So, oh, okay. you know, I don't know what the name of it is because <laughs> I worked on the East Coast, but if so I knew the, it then, the I don't remember now. Um, a, I'm over in Nevada these days. It was days, an archaeological dry and no water anymore although we used to be underwater too here so it doesn't seem to be the case that people disappeared from the region it just seems that sea levels have moved so dramatically through thousands of years following the younger driest period and then again at around 3400 years ago in the bay of fundy there was a massive tidal expansion mm-hmm. the tidal expansion actually seems to be correlated to the sure. Mi'kmaq legends of Gloose Cap related to parts of the Minas Basin as well. Mm-hmm. So uh, th- this is actually interesting to me because um, it's coming at a thing that we've been bouncing around on the podcast a few times now. But okay. Chris and I have noticed different interviews and different uh, papers that we've read that our point of view as primarily terrestrial archaeologists tends to be that when we map things, we stop at the water's edge. There's usually a hard mm-hmm. hard line there. But people who work in coastal environments or people who are maritime archaeologists uh, don't see that border in the same sort of strong way. And it sounds like you're saying that you know there are a lot of submerged sites, a lot of sites that have been lost that may have at one time been fully terrestrial and now are well underwater, ones that would have been borderlands that have been dried out. And so it seems that 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 transition zone between what's underwater and what's above water is very blurry. What you're telling me here seems to be reinforcing to me that that sense I've been getting. And I was just wondering if you agree with this position uh, and if you could give us maybe a specific example of something that you found in your study that, that might bolster that. Yes. We were talking in the first segment, I think, briefly about um, the Canadian Soil Information Services database and um, Mm -hmm. how as soon as you get to a soil or sediment with marine deposition as the primary mode of deposition in their database, the Canadian uh, Soil Information Service, there usually isn't another mode of deposition, but if you go out on the mudflats, you see tons of evidence of fluvial environments or you see tons of evidence a lot of times of buried forests but also adjacent to these areas a lot of times because when glaciers retreat there's a forebulge that will chase it northwards or that did chase it northwards um, following the younger dryas and mm-hmm. deglaciation you'll get a rapid lowering and then rise and then kind of settling of relative sea level um, as the four bulge moves through and the land lifts, you'll get a rapid flowering. Yeah, so being in coastal environments, you definitely have to look in the offshore, but also in the near shore as well, um, because a lot of these coastal environments, as deglaciation occurred in the Bay of Fundy, had glacial lakes form and aren't necessarily coastal, but they are shorelines. Yeah, like you, you had to look up and down in a lot of cases in the Bay of Fundy at least. Sounds incredibly complex. (laughs) Well, like I was saying, it's been sorted, but only at a geological scale. I'm trying to investigate some techniques to help (laughs) us sort out how to do it at an archaeological scale, how to 
sort of these histories at an archaeological scale. So Wesley, changing gears here a little bit, um, but in preparation mm-hmm. for this episode, I was reading your blog posts, and uh, I was really excited by your latest one about using Python to automate the measuring of surface areas of objects like lithics and potsherds. And uh, I downloaded the code, and I'm going to play with it myself as soon as I get the chance. This is more of a personal question, maybe professional. We'll see where it goes. But I don't know if you're writing these posts specifically to appeal to the random geeks like me out there, or <laughs> if it's some sort of personal need that you have in order to document your experiments, get these things written out so that you can see them, or if you have some broader idea in mind, maybe with respect to archaeological publication or uh, uh, building your own resume or something like that. Do you care to explain for us what the motivation was for this? And uh, and again, uh, we'll put the, uh, the link to the blog in the show notes so that people can go and hopefully play with that code themselves. Yeah, so uh, it's a bit of all of everything you just said, Paul. You know, obviously, it's fundamentally to document my experiments, but that's just because I'm doing, I'm playing around and being that geeky person that I guess this would appeal to. Uh, so, yeah, but you hit the nail on the head when you talked about it being like some sort of archaeological outreach, but also a resume builder. It's it's kind of all of it in terms of, I really like when I find a nice archaeological education piece that deals with technology or coding or some sort of data management or analysis. And so I figured, hey, if I'm playing around with this stuff, I might as well do it as well. And so I stumbled across another blog, a Python blog, which I mentioned in my blog on computer vision. And that's where I got the idea to Mm -hmm. test to see if I could measure artifacts quickly. And yeah, sure enough, I could. And Come to find out doing more investigation, there's a lot more uses for surface area or other automated measurements than just, you know, some flakes and ceramics as a, it's like an organizational part of an archaeological project. If you extract these measurements and then associate them with, say, some points plotted in GIS, well, then you you might be able to isolate, say, that fried egg pattern that Kavam mentions for um, right. spatial distribution of uh, of uh, flint napping. Uh, mm-hmm. The spatial no, structure of hard percussion. Too. Sorry. <laughs> uh, I knew what you meant. I didn't know. Yeah, the that's you knew what I, I meant. The um, what I did like about it was that you're taking a whole bunch of uh, <laughs> other ideas that weren't necessarily archaeological and some tools that weren't archaeological, and you applied them, you know, kind of in this iterative process through to to, to something that I could definitely actually see using in the field, and that you end up with not just measurements, but measurements that are exported then as tabular data. Suddenly, exactly. God, you know, I get thrilled when I get tabular data because then I can re-import it into something else. And like my, uh, here you go, drink database. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And, uh, and play with it even more then. So, uh, so that was, that was, um, it was, it appealed to me. It was very <laughs> inventive. I thought that was pretty cool. Yeah, thanks a lot. So are you working on any other projects currently, whether they be tech or archaeological or both, I guess? <laughs> so, yeah, I guess I, I mentioned a bit at the start, um, you know, when I first booked this and I first submitted that question, I figured that I would be working on all of the projects that I was 
anticipating starting back up this year in terms of small research projects here and there throughout the Bay of Fundy, playing around with photogrammetry and drones and helping students with work on the marshlands in Bay of Fundy. But yeah, it seems like COVID-19 has shut a lot of this down. And so the drones are at the door. I think that that's two or three drones in that last sentence. <laughs> that last run on sentence. <laughs> um, yeah, so more or less, yeah, I finished up this last CRM project. Hopefully I'll be able to be working on some projects using this um the surface area technique and automated extraction of metrics from artifact photos because I know as these lockdown restrictions are in place, there's lots of artifact photos out there. I'm currently inquiring into some data sets that I have been told exist for full collections of artifact photos, including flakes or also well-mapped archaeological sites within the Bay of Fundy to apply this surface area measurement. <laughs> I don't even know what to call it. It's, um, you know, the automated extraction of measurements. Uh, that and unfortunately, I can't go up north this year. That won't happen. <laughs> <laughs> Well, Wesley, I want to thank you for coming on the show. And if you guys do get a chance to get out there and do any research this year and you want to come back on and talk about it, we don't need papers. We don't need uh, anything <laughs> else. Just come on and, and talk about the trials and, and tribulations. What we like to hear is what went right, but more specifically, what went wrong. So we can, <laughs> if anything did, so our other listeners can actually learn from, uh, we can learn from each other, right? right? So we can say, hey, we tried awesome. this, but it didn't Thanks really work out that well, but we on. tried this and, and it worked uh, great. Paul, so feel free to help, come back on anything anytime and tell us uh, how it's going. Open CV installations or anything, send me a message. <laughs> I've already got a few emails saying that Open CV is a finicky uh, Python module, so... <laughs> No surprise. I mean, it's doing a hell of a lot. <laughs> All right. <laughs> All right. All right, everybody. Well, we are going to take a quick break and then Paul and I will be back for segment three, but we're going to say goodbye to Wesley right now. And thanks for coming on the show. And we'll be back in just a minute. You may have heard my pitch for membership. It's a great idea and really helps out. However, you can also support us by picking up a fun t-shirt, sticker, or something from a large selection of items from our Tee Public store. Head over to arcpodnet.com slash shop for a link. That's arcpodnet.com slash shop to pick up some fun swag and support the show. All right, welcome back to the Architect Podcast, episode 129. And Paul and I are just going to wrap this up real quick. It's not going to be a full segment. But, you know, Paul, I just wanted to talk because... As I was mentioning to uh, Wesley when we stopped recording, I was saying, you know, a lot of times, sure, we've talked about GPR before. We've talked about drones before. We've talked about Python and uh, and databases before. But every time we talk to somebody, they're always using these things in new and different ways. And that's one of the things I like about these technologies is they're, they're very specific in what they do. But when you combine them, you can ask very different research questions, depending on how those combinations go, just like the last one we had using two different types of magnetometer surveys or, or magnetic surveys, I guess, to do something to find out a question they were looking, find out where the data sets overlap and how they can, how they can complement each other. I think that's one really cool thing that we're finding out with, um, with 
with all the people we interview on this podcast. Yeah, no, I absolutely agree. It's, it's really cool too. That it's not just that people are putting together their tools in slightly different tool chains and uh, and applying them, but there's also, and this is really what he was going on about a lot, was uh, it's a specific knowledge of different landscapes and different cultural milieus that uh, that you wouldn't necessarily know about unless you know about it, right? And so the yeah. applicability of a certain tool set to a certain place in time or place on the map doesn't necessarily mean that it would apply equally well someplace else. And so it's, 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 we're getting glimpses of very specialized knowledge that a lot of our colleagues around the world have that they're very good at you know doing X, Y, and Z in place A, B, or C. And, uh, and we coming in, even if we had those same tools, wouldn't get the same bang out of it. We might get something different. We might get something totally unusable. But it's it's just it's really you're right. It is cool to see how people are putting together the uh, the particular things that they're doing with the knowledge that they have, both of those tools and of the places that they're mm -hmm. working. And we saw that actually in our last episode too, um, talking about using different kinds of uh, magnetic survey. Uh, you know, I, again, this is going to be me rambling. I don't know exactly where I'm going with it, but <laughs> the, the fact that we do come at it as a field from slightly different angles, I think is a good thing because mm -hmm. we do have all these different kinds of knowledge. It'd be nicer if we did have a more centralized, maybe that's not the right word, but a broader, more clear understanding of what other people are doing. And and that's where this podcast comes in for me, at least personally, is that I do then get to talk to people that aren't just the you know ancient Near Eastern archaeologists, but a whole wide range of people with a whole wide range of different challenges and a lot of the same tools and then a few of the different ones. And they're putting them together in ways that, that really get me excited. And I, actually, I got to that a little bit when I was asking about that question from the blog post, because yeah. those were a whole bunch of tools that weren't specific to archaeology, but he saw an application that he could use. And now I want to take and see if I can modify his tool set, then apply it to uh, data sets that I have, to sherds that I've collected over the years, for example. So yeah, and another observation I made that's going to tie back to what we're talking about right now is a lot of the people that we're talking to, especially it feels like in the last year or so, uh, are doing large-scale landscape surveys, right? Well, we talked about the guy doing the underwater analysis in uh, in the Mediterranean. And mm -hmm. it's just a lot of these large-scale surveys getting done. And I'm not sure... I'm not sure what the the impetus behind that is. Is it is it a lack of that type of data and people are noticing a hole there and a gap and so they're trying to fill that? Or is it the fact that we have the tools now uh, more so than we did well every year before then because they just get year they just get better year after year? But is it that we have the tools now to do those sorts of surveys and then to bring all that together? I'm not sure what's causing the other, but I like I like seeing all these large these large landscape style surveys. But where that ties back into what we were just talking about is, man, when, when you have somebody goes and does a, a huge DPR survey or they do a big drone survey or they do a big um, LIDAR survey or something like that, and, and they're doing it on a land scale, landscape type of, uh, type of uh, scale, the thing I wish is that we had a central world central repository or at least a country central repository where somebody could come in and say, hey, I also want to do research in the Bay of Fundy. And I'm going to do this, this, and this, but it'd be really helpful if I had your drone data or your LIDAR data or something like that. Mm -hmm. And 
you know, the problem with getting access to that, of course, is twofold. One, well, it's probably many fold, but the two I can think of are one, it's either stored away on a grad student's laptop or in the, um, or, or, you know, that's the worst case scenario, best case scenario. It's on computer servers somewhere within the university system. Right. And, and who knows what's going to happen with that. But then the other problem is sometimes funding for certain types of data collection you know, there might be restrictions around when the, when, wherever that funding came from to do that data collection, there might be restrictions to how that can be shared and stored and what it can be used for. So people don't have access to these large scale surveys, except for the papers that are written, which is why it's still, even though it's incredibly archaic to, I feel like continue writing papers about this stuff. It's really the only way we have to let people know that something was actually done. And then maybe you can track down the data set. I think to solve this problem, we have to have the the high amount of data first and people aware of it and, and really understanding that this is an issue to get access to it. And then maybe something will get constructed at some point later in the future where we can store all this and, and get to it as, um, as researchers, because it would have to be, you know, security based access just because it's, it's technically secure information in some cases, but yeah, it's interesting. I think we're, we're moving in the right direction. Yeah. And then there's the other attendant problem of not just where are the data stored and who has them and who has access, but how do you, and this, this gets to, uh, what we learned about last episode, how do you know that those data even exist or what kind of data you might want until you know about them? Mm -hmm. You know, so I guess it's kind of like browsing in a bookstore, right? People who like browsing in a bookstore, (laughs) part of the joy of it is finding a book that they'd never heard of, opening it up, finding a, you know, paging through a few pages and uh, and going, oh, I want this and going home with it, you know, which is Mm -hmm. a big complaint that people have with, uh, with electronic you know, with Amazon, for example, with electronic bookstores. Uh, that, yeah. That's an analogy. I don't know how closely it fits, but I do know that there are a lot of things I don't know. Again, to wrap it back up to the uh, to this podcast and having guests on and reading the articles that we read is that uh, I keep on finding out about really cool things that I had no idea existed <laughs> and uh, ways that people are putting yeah. them together and in ways that I had no idea were possible and getting results from them. So that that's excellent. That's a lot of fun, but uh, I don't know how you systematize that. Well, I, I have a dream where somebody somebody listens to an episode of this podcast or or they read a paper and somebody said, listen, I used this technique, this technique, and this technique to answer this question. And they're like, man, I'm really interested in this research area over here. I'd like to do the same thing. And then they go to this this central or multiple central repositories and they and they find the data sets that have already been done that correlate to what they want to do. And then they, they just do the analysis, whatever, whatever that means on, on the data using those data sets. And they produce an entirely different set of research questions and answers and, and analysis and go from there mm-hmm. without ever stepping foot outside of their computer browser. Right. That would be super cool because that means we're kind of coming full circle and we're all really sharing ideas and data and progress like we're supposed to, but it still feels like archaeologists in some cases are kind of working in their own little um, silos where it's, it's this universe they live in and, you know, they, they escape it every once in a while by giving a paper, but then they, they, they shelter right back inside to collect more data, do more analysis, finish a thesis, finish a PhD, whatever they're going to do. And then, you know, present that again and then go work on something else. But it would be nice if we could learn from each other through podcasts and papers and things like that. And then, and then go search for those data sets and do the similar analysis and, and come up with new things to say. I think that'd be a really cool way to, way to do it. So I agree. 
All right. Well, I think we're going to call it right there. Um, thanks again to Wesley for coming on. And please, if you're listening to this show, it you may not think you have something interesting, but that's probably just because you're too close to it. <laughs> Trust me, <laughs> other people are going to think. <laughs> you, you've been thinking about it constantly. You know, uh, we, we challenged Wesley to really think about his research and he's he's deep in this in his brain. And he's just like, man, I'm talking about this all the time. I'm doing all these things. And it's and it's it's good to, to just talk to some people who don't know anything about it. To, to coalesce your ideas and to, and to bring things out. And Paul and I are both archaeologists and, and knowledgeable about a lot of these subjects. So, you know, we may be even able to, um, you know, bring some of our experience to the table as well. So if you want to do that, uh, check out the show notes, arcpodnet.com forward slash archaeotech. Any one of the show notes has our contact info in it. And you can, you can reach us on Twitter, Facebook, wherever you want, wherever you found this podcast, and then go do that. So, Thanks again to Wesley and uh, thanks also to the listeners and thank you, Paul, for, uh, for some of the great questions. Again, you pretty much ran the last segment there, <laughs> which was great. <laughs> well, it was interesting. I like hearing what he had to say about his work. So uh, thanks, Chris. Yeah. Um, take care. Wash your hands. Thanks for listening to the Architect Podcast. Links to items mentioned on the show are in the show notes at www.archpodnet.com slash Archaeotech. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com and paul at lugal.com. Support the show by becoming a member at archpodnet.com slash members. The music is a song called Off-Road and is license-free from Apple. Thanks for listening. This show is produced and recorded by the Archaeology Podcast Network, Chris Webster and Tristan Boyle in Reno, Nevada at the Reno Collective. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Thanks again for listening to this episode and for supporting the Archaeology Podcast Network. If you want these shows to keep going, consider becoming a member for just $7.99 US dollars a month. That's cheaper than a venti quad eggnog latte. Go to archpodnet.com slash members for more info.